All right. Well, uh, last week I mentioned that we will be starting a new series called I Promise I Won't Go Long. Um, and if you didn't catch that reference, it is a uh, tongue-in-cheek reference uh, to what I always promise at the start of every message but almost never deliver on. Good times, and good times they were. In case you missed it or forgot or didn't know, uh, this will be my last uh, preaching series as your pastor. And so here's a little uh, small trip down memory lane. This, was, uh, this picture was seven years ago uh, when I first became uh, your pastor. And uh, all of you seniors exiting youth group in a couple months were just entering junior high. And this, I think, was like your first uh, youth group thing. Um, and so you guys are so small. Now Davis is a giant. He's not even here. Can't even roast that guy. Uh, but it's okay because Jared is still the same. So um, I'm just kidding. Jared, I love you. <laughs> I love you, Jared. But look at Audrey, okay? Look at Audrey, look at uh, Talia. So small, so small. Um, here's another one. Um, yeah, look at these kids. Look at all you guys. Super tiny. You guys are all, all, all you seniors were seventh graders. Um, look at Pierce, so cute. Um, <laughs> um, I don't mean to re- be rude, but most of, uh, most of you weren't even here yet, um, but we've come full circle. Um, I had actually thought that we were going to be meeting in rooms G and H uh, for tonight, and so I, I, was, I had prepared in my notes that we've come full circle and that we've ended up where we first started, um, but actually we're in the gym now. Um, but um, what was really crazy is that uh, junior high was combined with high school back then, and we were starting a brand new series in the letter of James. And what was once the size of the youth group seven years ago is actually now the size of high school group alone. And so, um, actually, I think you guys are all bigger than this group here, which is really, really crazy. Um, I think in total, this was like maybe like 50 people. I think this is like, I don't know, close to 60, uh, if not uh, 60. Um, and so, um, as some of you wrap up your last year in high school, and, I, and as, I, as I wrap up my last three months as your pastor, I feel a deep... Uh, burden for you, um, a burden to protect and to encourage you. Um, but what I want you all to know more than anything else is that I love you. Um, I hope the lingering thing for you when you graduate and leave this youth group is that while youth group maybe wasn't, I don't know, the funnest thing for you, uh, it was at least a place where you were loved, uh, where you were shown affection and experienced care uh, by the youth staff and by me. And I know we didn't do it perfectly, but I hope, despite our imperfect love, that you know that you are loved by God through our love for you. And so about 14, 13 or 14 sermon series and 100 or so sermons later, here we are. Um, I'm about to step down from being your pastor and step away from pastoral ministry completely. How did we end up here? You might ask. How did I end up here? You might wonder. And so since Pastor Kim's announcement back in December about my stepping down, I haven't actually had a chance to personally share with you why. And so I'll be doing that tonight. But in sharing why I'm stepping down, um, I saw it also as an opportunity to talk about the will of God. How did uh, God's will guide me toward this decision? Um, In fact, what is the will of God? Um, Is it really God's will for me to step down and to move to Texas where the weather can fluctuate 60 degrees in a single day? I think Leighton can attest to that. Uh, Is it really God's will for you to choose this major or 
this sport or this friend. And, um, you know, in your handouts, there's actually um, a little chart, I think, on the third side of um, your handout. And uh, it's kind of funny because the, the sermon title for tonight is um, uh, The Simplicity of God's Will. But uh, this chart makes it like the complete opposite. It makes it like all, all complicated and stuff. I really do believe that God's will really is simple. Um, but this is uh, the chart that, uh, that is actually in your handouts is a chart that Pastor Kim had made. Um, I actually won't be referencing it at all, uh, but I hope that it actually helps you in your decision making. A, a, um, a little hint, start from left to right. Um, I, I know it might be confusing on where you should start, but start from left to right, okay? <laughs> Um, and I, I think uh, in kind of covering tonight's message, I think you might actually know where to start, um, hopefully. But um, contrary to the title of this message, um, for some of you, the will of God doesn't seem simple at all. Uh, it, it seems like the opposite, in fact. It seems, for you, abstract, esoteric, complicated, and, and never clear when we want it to be. The will of God often isn't the solution to uh, our anxiety, but really the, the very cause of it. Because related to the will of God is the question of what God wants us to do with our lives. I'm, I'm sure some of you guys have asked yourselves, what is God calling me to do tomorrow, uh, next year? And what if I miss God's call? What if I make decisions that mess it up? Could I do something that is outside the will of God? And that's stressful. And so to help us, I want us to take a look at a very familiar passage in the Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 to 34, I mean, we've read it a million times um, because it talks about fear and worry, but we often forget the context in which Jesus talks about fear and worry. Jesus tells us not to stress when we're thinking about the future, when we're planning our five-year, ten-year plan for our lives, when we're choosing about which school to go to, when we don't know what's next. And so this passage isn't really about fear and worry per se, it's about the unknowable future and what to do about it, what to do about it, and what we often do about it. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. It's a very familiar passage for, like I mentioned, for all of you. And once you guys are there, I'm going to read it for us. But this is what Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 says. And I know, again, like I've said, it's a very familiar passage, but I hope we can see it with new eyes. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And what you view by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. 
Well, can I be honest with you a little bit? Uh, this passage wasn't really my first choice. Uh, not just because it's overused and, and runs the risk of being simplistic and lacking nuance, but because, frankly, when I think about stepping down from serving people that I love, when I think about not having a job for the first time in 10 years, when I think about having to leave a church that has loved and nurtured me, when I think about having to leave a church, I'm sorry, when I think about having to move from California to, to Texas, when I think about leaving everything that I have known and going somewhere unknown with very little friendships, very little community, no job, I can't help but be stressed. And, and you know, people have been very encouraging and, and telling me that they're very excited for Megan and I. And while I'm very thankful for people's excitement for us, truth be told, I'm stressed. Because what if in quitting my job here, I'm actually giving up a good thing? And I think I am. What if I mess up my life? What if this is the wrong choice? And that's stressful. And so I didn't, I didn't want to preach this passage because I didn't believe it. Which raises the legitimate question. Like, Eric, why are you stepping down then in the first place? Isn't this, you know, isn't some of this worry self-inflicted? In fact, for some of you, you might have even wondered, is it even okay to leave ministry? How do you know that this is God's plan for your life? And not that I need to convince any of you or justify myself, but here's what led me to this point. I've always wanted to quit from the first day I took on the job. And I say this just in case some of you thought I had a mental breakdown during the pandemic. I didn't. But from, very, from the very first day, pastoral ministry was hard for me. I had some really big shoes to fill. Pastor David was the youth pastor at the time. I mean, he was the pillar and there was a lot of expectation when I took over the position. And, and then the, when, our, when our church plant in Texas started, many of the old youth staff at the time, uh, veteran youth staff, either they, left, either they either left to go with the church plant or they stepped down completely. And there was, a, there was a complete reshuffling of leadership with me taking on the new role of youth pastor. And I had a ton of really great support from, uh, from people like Megan, from Kaylin, uh, from Josh, Justin, and so many others, but it was still really, really hard. And when I took on the new role, you seniors were the first of many big classes that came to the youth ministry. Your class alone doubled the size of the youth group at the time, but I couldn't quit. Uh, I couldn't quit just because it was hard. In fact, um, I remember distinctly telling Megan uh, at the end of a really long Friday night that I wanted to quit. And she was like, no, you can't quit. Uh, it's because you've never had to work hard before. And so you can't quit. So suck it up. Um, yeah, I got, I got roasted by Megan a lot those days. Um, but even though it was hard, what I want you guys to know that it wasn't because of you guys. I still love being your youth pastor. Um, it's actually what kept me going for so long despite wanting to quit on the first day. Youth ministry was incredibly fun. It was rewarding. It was exciting. I loved you guys. I loved you guys still. And even though I was constantly worried about some of you, I loved caring for you. But the sense of wanting to quit always lingered and remained in the back of my head. And just to assure you, again, like I mentioned, my main reason for stepping down wasn't because pastoral ministry was, was difficult or because of this difficult parent or a difficult coworker, as Pastor Kim likes to refer to. I'm like, who is this hypothetical, difficult coworker that Pastor Kim speaks of so often? Was it me? No matter how hard it was, being your pastor for the past seven years and an intern for three and a half years were the second best things that happened to me 
And I think you guys all know what the first, the, the best thing that happened to me was getting married to Megan, of course. So why? Why, why step down? I'm stepping down not because it's hard, but because over the years I've simply gained clarity for how God has gifted me and where God is leading me. As I reflect back on the last seven years, I mean, what what 24-year-old at the time actually knows what to do with their life? We assume that things don't change, that friendships remain the same, that people don't change, that pandemics don't happen that plans and dreams don't change. But what did I know as a 24-year-old? I was still trying to figure things out as a youth pastor. And so seven years later, I can't say that I've figured everything out, but I can say that I've gotten a clearer grasp of my gifting and I think my calling. I realized that the things that I enjoyed most about pastoral ministry, the things that I believed I was good at, weren't necessarily things that were explicitly tied to pastoral ministry. So for example, I really enjoyed, the and still do, really enjoy the academic side of pastoral ministry. You know, like reading and quoting dead people. I mean, you guys all know about, all about that. The studying, the research, the deep dives into you know, some abstract theology, all the, all the non-pastoral stuff. And it's partly the reason why my sermons are so long. The other reason is simply that I'm just long-winded. So, sorry, guys. Um, I mean, if I mean, if you think I mean, if you were to come over to my house, I have, I have a very different. Ah, I have a very different set of books compared to the books collected and owned by the other pastors on staff. And by God's grace and through the help of uh, friends and pastors on on staff, um, I think I've grown in being a pastor. Hopefully, uh, but it wasn't easy for me. Um, As some of you know, every time any of us preach on a Sunday, uh, we're asked to preach it ahead of time to the pastoral staff so that we receive feedback in preparation for that Sunday message. Um, And the most repeated feedback that I would personally get, that other guys would not get, is that it was awesome. I'm just kidding. They they did not say that. It was actually the opposite. Um, The most frequent feedback, you guys didn't laugh because you guys were like, what a liar. The most frequent, frequent feedback is that it wasn't practical enough, that it was too abstract or that it was too long. You guys know all about that. And what it revealed was that I, what I enjoyed most about pastoral ministry and my greatest interests was the theoretical and the abstract, not the, not the practical or the concrete. I mean, I have an undergrad philosophy degree, which I mean really isn't saying much, but that's just how God had crafted me. And so with, mere, with, with much fear and trembling, I came to the realization that pastoral ministry just wasn't what I was called to do with my particular interests, my gifting, and skill. And it became clear to me that I wasn't right, the right fit for the role. And in many ways, the role wasn't really the right fit for how God had made me. But while it's one thing to know what I don't want to do for the rest of my life, it's another thing to, fi- to figure out what I do want to do the rest of my life. Knowing what I'm not supposed to do is only half the equation, because now I have to figure out what I am supposed to do. What does God want me to do with my life? The bigger question is, what's next? What is God calling me to next? You see, greater clarity of my gifting, I've found, didn't make my future clearer, but actually only cloudier. And we like to talk about how the future is boundless possibility, but the Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard disagrees. 
He says that if the future is boundless freedom, then we will only feel anxious about the future. In his book, The Concept of Anxiety, he writes that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Looking into the boundlessness of your own possibilities isn't freedom, but dizzying anxiety. My future isn't exciting as people claim that it is for me. It's actually worrying. And so discerning the will of God for my future didn't actually get easier, but actually got harder. And while I have some idea what I want to do next, it's not like it's guaranteed to work out. Like, what if my plans don't pan out the way that I hoped? And it's not like I'm going to drop $100,000 to get a PhD only to spend the rest of my life paying off student debt. Like, that doesn't make practical sense to me. And so in many ways, God's will for my life doesn't seem clear, but murky. It doesn't seem simple, but complicated. And so I'm preaching our passage tonight because I need to preach it to myself. This passage is as much for me as it is for you. Because I'm worried. I'm personally worried about my future. As I'm preaching this to you, I am stressed. And if you're worried about your future, this passage is for you as well. From this passage, Jesus speaks words of comfort to people who are stressed out about their future. Who don't know what tomorrow will bring. Who don't know which college to attend who don't know if they'll even go to college, which church to go to, which class to take people who don't know what to do next. If this is you, Jesus speaks to you and tells you what God's simple will for your life is. And so the key idea for our passage tonight is that God's will consists of two simple actions. Two simple actions. The first is that God's simple will is that we put first things first. For a little bit of context, we're going to read verses 24 to 25 together. But this is what Jesus says again in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus makes a slight switch in emphasis from verse 24 and verse 25. Whereas in verse 24, Jesus clearly warns against sinful and unjustifiable desire of excess, the love of money. Here in verse 25, Jesus takes aim at the much more reasonable and even defensible desire for just bare necessities, food and clothing. In other words, Jesus shifts from addressing people with excessive wants to the people who have justifiable needs. And to the people who have needs, not wants, Jesus says not to worry. But if you think about it, if you don't have the basic necessities of life, how can you not be concerned? I mean, that's, that's my question as I'm reading this passage. How can you not be worried if you do not have food and clothing? If you think about it, the people that Jesus is talking to aren't like, 
you know, influencers or rich people. They're not even people from the suburbs. They're poor people. They're people who have no shelter, no roof over their heads, poor sanitation, no health care. And as people whose livelihoods are heavily dependent upon the climate, if there's no rain, they will die. Of course there's legitimate concern. And how can Jesus say, don't worry? But this is not the kind of concern that Jesus is warning against. There's a sense in which worry is not only good, but its absence is, biblically speaking, actually irresponsible. Not all of life is zen. Not all of life is chill. Sometimes our bodies register danger quick, far, quickly, far quicker than our conscience, conscience, uh, conscious sorry, senses even do. The absence of concern doesn't mean that you're necessarily godly. It might just reveal that you're irresponsible. For example, the Paul who says, don't be anxious about anything in Philippians, is also the same Paul who says that there is the daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches in 2 Corinthians. The Jesus who says, don't be anxious here, is also the same Jesus who was so agonized and distressed over the cross that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground in Luke. Sometimes our worries are justifiable. I'm worried that you guys will make bad decisions in life. I'm worried that I will make bad decisions in my life. The future is inherently uncertain and uncontrollable, and that is understandably worrisome. But this is also where the temptation lies. The temptation that all of us face when we worry is always the question, will worry drive me to trust in God or will it drive me to trust in myself and my ability to control what is inherently uncontrollable? To be worried about you, to beg you to change your mind, to pray that God would change you, to save you, is one thing. But it's another thing altogether to be so worried about you that I try to micromanage your life, to sabotage your relationships so that your friends hate you, to spread rumors and gossip about you, to slash your tires, to text you incessantly, to act ridiculously and, ridicul- and unreasonably. It makes me wonder if worry is really a genuine concern for others or really a guise to micromanage and control other people. Why'd you do that? Oh, I'm just really concerned about you. Smiley face. When people say that to you, like run away. They don't care about you. You're just their project. It's possible for good things like concern for the future, concern for our friends, concern for our grades, to become ruling things. The things that we try to control end up controlling us. When we worry about our grades, we can't think about anything else. And I think you guys know this. When we worry about what others think of us, we can't think about anything else. In fact, the only thing that we think about is what we should have said, what we shouldn't have said, what we should have done, what we shouldn't have done. When we worry about the future, we can't think about anything else. When your parents worry about you, they can't think about anything else. You know this. It's the reason why tiger parenting exists, why it's a thing. When we worry, 
Our minds are preoccupied. We're on edge. We're irritable. We're upset when people or things or circumstances aren't changing. We're depressed. Fretful concern even spills over into our bodies. Our bodies respond poorly to it. We develop headaches. We don't sleep well. Our immune systems are weakened. As much as we can't help but worry, we also choose to worry. And this is exactly why Jesus cautions us against worrying in general. Not just because concern itself is bad, but because we are typically bad with it. When we worry, we tune God out. I mean, how many of you remember God when you were worried? The last time you were worried, when was the last time when you were worried that you were driven to trust and dependence upon God and on others when you were anxious? Left to ourselves and the crookedness of our hearts, worry itself does not propel us toward deeper dependence upon God. Apart from the intervening grace of God, worry only drives us into deeper independence from God. Because we'd just rather do it ourselves. Because if God doesn't help me, who else will help me except myself? And so anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. Worry presumes control over the uncontrollable. The illusion of control lurks inside every single worry of ours. When we can't control something, the natural outcome is that we worry about it. And Jesus warns against worry because worry essentially is trying to do what only God can do. But more than a warning, Jesus helps us in our worries. By the way, I know I'm talking a lot about about worry, not the will of God, but don't worry, pun intended. This is not a bait and switch, okay? I'm getting there, I just have to kind of create the backdrop, okay? But when we have reasons to worry, Jesus heaps counter-reason upon counter-reason to trust our Father instead. Take a look at verses 26 to 30. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The first counter reason to trust our Father according to Jesus is that God is our Father. This isn't some rando. We may have treated God as some stranger, but we're not strangers to God. We are our Father's children, and we are not the sum total of our worries. The second kind of reason is that because we are not the sum total of our worries, our life is so much more than food or clothing. According to our Father, there is so much more to who we are than what we have and don't have. There is so much more to who we are than what will happen to us in the future. There is so much more to who you are than people's acceptance or approval of you. There is so much more to who you are than your achievements, your successes, your best moments, or even your failures, your mess-ups, your sins, or even your worst moments. You are the beloved of the Father. And nothing, nothing can change that. 
not even your worries. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, things today or things tomorrow, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm preaching this to myself even as, I, even as I'm scared out of my mind about things tomorrow. I'm trying to believe this. The third counter reason is that even though our, our lives are worth more than food or clothing, our Father still provides us with food and clothing. The lesson of nature is that God provides for it all from, from grass to the ravens. In fact, the word that Jesus uses for consider the lilies is the word study. Learn from the lilies. Take time to stare at them, smell at them. Get their pollen on your shirt if you need to. Because here's what you'll find. The thing about lilies, if you've ever noticed, taking time to notice, is that they don't do much. They just sit there. Oh my gosh. Sorry. They sit there. They sit there unhurried. The thing we learn about the lilies is that they don't do anything. And yet God still dresses it. The birds, he feeds them. And I can go on and on, and the, but the point is that through our, that though our, our worries are many, our Father is greater than our worries. And because we are our Father's children, we aren't like the children of the world. Take a look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall, we, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The word for Gentiles is the word for nations, the secular world. And according to the world, life really is just all about food, drink, and clothing. I mean, this shouldn't surprise us. What they see is all that there is. It's the material world. But again, it's not like God doesn't care about food, drink, or clothing. God knows that we need all these things, but God sees deeper. The question is, are we defined by these things in the same way that the world is defined by these things? We know what the world is about. We know what defines the world, but what will define us? What are the children of the Father about? What are we defined by? Will we obsess over the same things everyone else obsesses with, but, but what everyone in the world is obsessed with, God makes a distant second. And so is there a difference for you? Practically speaking, when we face the pressure of tests and exams, do we sound like the non-Christian next to us? When I face the worry of not having health insurance, will my worries sound like everyone else's worries? When we're unable to control our circumstances, do we worry with the same tone, the same vocabulary, the same attitude, the same everything? One way that Jesus helps us distinguish godly worry from worldly worry is if my worry propels me toward God. Does my worry drive me deeper into humility than, rather than a clenched fist and grip over my circumstances? Does my worry encourage my worship of God, or does it encourage doom-scrolling and despair? 
Do I express my worry the same way my non-Christian friends express their worry? It's not surprising if the worries of our friends are godless, but are our worries godless as well? Jesus reminds us that we have a Heavenly Father who knows that we need them all. And so instead of worrying, instead of trying to anticipate the future, instead of trying to outline every single step of your life, instead of trying to micromanage and control every outcome and being disappointed when it doesn't work out, Jesus offers a different way to do life. He he offers the simple will of the Father. And after 35 minutes or so, here it is. Take a look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In a nutshell, this is, in mine, this is God's will for your life. I know it sounds, and it is, anticlimactic. I mean, you thought I'd solve all your life's problems. But this is the way that the Bible sums up the will of God for your life and for my life. If you bet your life on, and if the center of your life revolves around what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, what people think of you, where you'll end up living, what job you'll get, what spouse you'll marry, what salary you'll earn, what life you'll get to live, then you will be constantly disappointed. But if you stake your life and bet your life, and if the center of your life revolves around kingdom values, kingdom priorities, kingdom virtues, King Jesus himself, then you will never be disappointed. If you get your life to be about what your father is about, then all the other things you need will be added on. That is the promise that Jesus makes. Now this all sounds great, but what does any of this have to do with the will of God for your life and for mine? It has everything to do with the will of God, because typically, when we think of God's will, we conventionally think of it as some plan that we have to figure out from God about our future, right? When we want direction from God about an important decision that we have to make, we often find ourselves thinking, it'd be great if God would just show me, tell me, have it written in the sky, make it abundantly clear that this is the program that I should be applying for, that this is the person that I should be dating, that this is the car that I should be buying because gas is so freaking expensive. That this is the school that I should be attending. That leaving ministry is what I should be doing. We want to know God's specific, individual plan for the who, what, where, when, and how of our lives. We want to know God's will of direction. And I can understand why we want it. For some of us, it's simply because we, we want to please God. We want to do what God wants. For others of us, it's simply because we're afraid. We don't want to mess up. We don't want to make the wrong choice. For others of us, it's simply because there's just, there's just too much choice. How do we know? Which actually brings us back to the previous reason, which is the fear of messing up. It's one of the reasons why when we pray, if we do pray, the common theme is, God, please let this performance go well. Allow me to pass this test that I don't get sick 
Again, not that there's anything wrong with praying these things, but it reveals our priorities. We want things in our lives to be fine. And while these fears are understandable, this is again stressful. But God never burdens us with the task of figuring out his will of direction for our lives ahead of time. In fact, God doesn't have a hidden will of direction that we need to discover. Which brings us to some really important definitions and clarifications before we move on. What is the will of God? The will of God can refer to one of two distinct senses. The first sense is that God wills all things to happen before all time and into eternity. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. Whatever God decrees will come to pass and nothing can thwart his hand. Daniel chapter 4 verse 25. This is the plan of God that is unknowable to all human beings. But we can trust that God is working all things out from the big to the small according to his own good and sovereign purposes. Romans chapter 8 verses 28 to 30. God doesn't just plan a few of the big milestones in our lives, but has a direct hand in every single thing that happens in our lives. He knows the smallest sparrow and the grayest hair. This is known as God's, this is known as God's will of decree or God's sovereign will. The second sense refers to God's will of desire. God desires things for the world. He desires that everyone would repent and not perish, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He desires that we love him, that we do what is pleasing to him, Colossians chapter 1. God's will of desire is also known as his will of command. There are clear and obvious things that God desires for us to do through his voice of scripture. And in God's will of decree, everything happens accordingly. But in God's will of desire, it's possible for things to not go according to God's desire. For example, God desires that we love him, but we fail to love him. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, captures both senses of God's will by describing that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that, we, that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the words of the law. And to explain this, I think, a little better, here's an analogy. Your parents probably don't tell you everything that you need to know about everything. They probably don't tell you their plans 10 years from now or how much they're investing in their 401k or how much they've saved for your college tuition. And these plans won't change. That's your parents' will of decree. But the reason why they don't tell you is because it simply isn't appropriate for you to know. In the wisdom of your parents, they intentionally withhold things from you that you don't need to know. But they tell you enough for you to live your life today, which can be either obeyed or disobeyed. And that's your parents' will of desire. In a similar way, there are things that God ordains and knows that only he knows. And in his wisdom, as our divine parent, God intentionally withholds from us. It's simply inappropriate for us to know. In fact, I think our brains would just explode from knowing infinite and eternal things. But God tells us exactly what we need to know to live our lives today. That's God's will of desire. Well, what is for sure knowable to us is God's will of desire. And God's will of desire 
is simply verse 34. That we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's it. And while I know that it's incredibly unsatisfying and vague as an answer, God thinks it's actually astonishing freedom. You know, I think many of us think that God is intentionally trying to be ambiguous with our lives. Like God is, you know, sneaky. He's hiding his will <coughs> and, and, and waiting for it to be discovered like an Easter bunny hides his eggs, waiting for them to be found by some kids. But in reality, God simply gives us freedom. God is incredibly flexible with our future because, precisely because he is incredibly inflexible with our present. Let me repeat that. God is incredibly flexible with our future precisely because he is incredibly inflexible with our present. I mean, even now, we are free to do a lot of things as long as scripture permits it. The only thing that we are not free to do is to put anything above God or before God. Verse 34. God must be first and foremost in everything. But once we seek first God's kingdom and order our lives around him, the world suddenly becomes full of possibility. We are free to make decisions in our future as long as we are faithful to God in the present. When the kingdom is your dominating priority in life, when pursuing Jesus becomes the most important thing to you, when your heart is preoccupied with kingdom values, when you get your life to be about what your father is about, it begins to shape your overall choices and decisions. When our desires are curated, cultivated, and pruned by God, then our choices also follow a similar curation. When we pursue God's kingdom and righteousness, we begin to make choices that align with the Father's priorities. When you meet someone that you like, you begin to make choices that align with that person's interests and desires. I mean, Augustine said it best from a sermon in 1 John chapter 4 where he says, love and do what you will. When love for God and love for other, others undergirds your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, your future, the possibilities are endless. Here's the hope for you and me. If we truly seek God above all, then we will always be doing the will of God. If we truly seek God above all, then we will always be doing the will of God. No matter where our particular choices lead us, no matter what job we end up taking, no matter who we end up marrying, no matter where we end up living, because seeking God's kingdom first is God's will for your life. Seeking God's kingdom becomes the boundary within which our freedom, within which our choices are free and pleasing to God. Seeking God's kingdom becomes the boundary within which our choices are free and pleasing to God. And so what does seeking God's kingdom actually mean? It means valuing Valuing what God values. Holiness, purity, justice, love, patience, reconciliation, forgiveness. 
When we seek God's kingdom, there is so much freedom. And not the dizzying kind of freedom that Kierkegaard is talking about, but really true freedom. Because it actually means that you are free to do anything. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the heck? Because when our lives are about what our Father is about, then we have the confidence and assurance that we are walking in the will of God and the security that what we do is His will. We can't lose at all when we seek the kingdom of God. The weightiest choice that we make is never between weighing two future options like moving from California to Texas, but between two ways of living. Living for the kingdom of God or living for something else instead. That will be the weightiest decision that you ever make in your entire life. Will I live for God or live for myself? The question that God cares about most isn't where should I live, what school will I go to, but will I seek God's kingdom where I live? Will I seek God's kingdom where I go to school? God's will is simple because it calls us to put first, first things first. But let's get a bit more specific as I'm sure all of you were waiting for. As I mentioned earlier, despite having a clearer sense of my gifting and abilities, it's not like I know what I should be doing with my life. I mean, I still don't really know what's next. Seeking God's will, uh, seeking God's kingdom and righteousness is great, but it doesn't exactly tell me how or what God is specifically calling me to do. And that's why I think verses 25 to verse 32 were necessary for us to go through. Despite how stressful and worrying it is, we know the heart of the Father. And our Father works personally and purposefully in each of His children. Each of us are handmade, one of a kind. We are not mass-produced, nor are we interchangeable parts. You'll have giftings, abilities, and life experiences that I'll never have, and vice versa. Each day and each situation, Elise or Daniel or Naomi have the opportunity to say, to do constructive things that no other human being could do or say. Sorry, I'll just calling out your names randomly. God has uniquely made us, placed us on planet Earth, born to this particular family, living in this city, given this particular set of giftings and abilities to serve God here and now in a specific way. And so the question is, what is this specific way? What has God specifically made you for on planet Earth, on the stage of your time place and experience. And I want to help us think through this, and so I'm, I know I'm going to be, I'm going along, but what's an, what's an Eric message if I don't? Am I right? But to help us think through what God has specifically made for you right now, I want us to consider five questions. What are your gifts? What is your life experience? What are your opportunities? How have you grown? What do you think, what, what, what do you thrive doing? And as you consider all five of these questions, they contribute to what is your calling from God. What you're called to do in your life situation right now, life situation right now, to fulfill the will of God. Your calling is not less than, but more important than what, you're, what you currently do right now. Whether as a student or a scientist, a doctor, a pharmacist, a therapist, a calling as a way of seeing the world with the eyes of the heart. 
No two people see the world in exactly the same way. Pastors and other religious professionals aren't the only ones who have a calling from God. All of us do. Every single Christian does. So long as God made you, crafted you, gifted you, gave you a personality with experiences and growth, you have a calling. A career causes people to think of income, power, position, and prestige, while a calling goes deeper to inspire people to consider things beyond money, power, and and position, to consider human need, morality, and the common good of society. And so these five questions exist to help us discern our calling. And so I'll go short with these because I haven't gotten to my second point yet. The first question that we want to consider is, what are my gifts? What are my gifts? I mean, this one's easy. God gives you gifts and abilities for your benefit because he loves you. But he also gives you gifts and abilities for the sake of others. And so what are you good at? How are you wired? How has God wired you? I like to think of, personally, I like to think a little outside of the box and definitely outside of the lines if you know me. And so that helps me narrow down my focus. But if you don't know, ask a trusted friend, someone who will offer their honest assessment of you, what you're good at. Secondly, what are you, and what are you, what are you not good at as well? What are your life experiences, secondly? God works in the mundane, in the ordinary, not in spiritual cloisters. God comes to us in the normal activities of daily life. God uses everything. And so what have you been given? What classes have you taken? What have you learned? Skills that you've acquired? Positive field trips or vacations that you've been on? Have your parents had cancer? Other health problems. Experiences and backgrounds are important because they show how your life has unfolded, gives you experience, and may point to a common trajectory for your life. And so God uses your life experiences. Thirdly, what are your, what are your opportunities? While you are your own person, your calling is not individualistic self-fulfillment. It's not a version of follow your dreams. Your calling will always be connected to other people. You are never disconnected from others. It is tuned to the needs, the true needs of people around you and God's purposes for his people. And so what does God, what does seeking God's kingdom look like? Where do you see opportunity and need? What are the problems, troubles, and struggles of your time and place in your family, with your friend group, this high school group? What needs to be done that no one else seems to be doing? And closed doors also give us clues about our calling as well. A calling implies limits because in choosing to pursue one calling over another, we eliminate other possible callings as well. We can't do everything. And so closed doors also reveal our calling as well. Fourthly is how have you grown? How have you grown? You are living out the God who lives inside you. And so how has he changed you this past week, this past semester, this past this year as opposed to last year? How have you demonstrated change and where do you still need to grow? How have you resisted temptation, bitterness, fought discouragement and lust, or cultivated humility and patience? This question is really important because it will be the difference maker in the quality of how you fulfill your calling. This question asks how you are currently living your life. God doesn't just look at what you do. He looks at who you are on the inside. And fifth is what do you thrive doing? What makes sense for you? What do you enjoy doing? 
What do you get excited about? When you talk about blink, your eyes light up. What is that blink for you? Of course, our desires can deceive us and lead us astray, which is why it's important what we're asking the question for honestly and frequently. But at the same time, our calling often resonates with our desires. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do matters to God. And so before we step away from these questions, something that I want you to know is that a calling isn't a fixed thing. It's not, it's not static. It changes with time and, and circumstance in the same way that it's changed with mine. I mean, seven years later, I'm stepping out of pastoral ministry, something that I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. And so, for example, in questions one and two, it may seem like your gifting hasn't really changed, but as you get older, I mean, you guys are just, what, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 as you get older, you might discover an unsuspected gift later on in your life. Because the reality is that you and I change. And making decisions is hard. We need to be realistic that we just aren't going to make the best possible decision every single time. And that's okay. From our series in Job, we learn that not even our wisest choices can protect us from unwanted suffering and consequences. Sometimes consequences for even our wisest choices are unavoidable. But the reality is that we don't often make wise choices. We choose to do the unwisest thing and turn from God. In our worries and anxieties, rather than turning toward God, we suppress our knowledge of God and run away from Him. And yet our Father still knows we need. He sends His Son for us, Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived and suffered for the consequences and sins that weren't even his own. Jesus pledged that he would provide for us with his own life. And if God gave up his son for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And so we press on in putting first things first. We seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to us. That brings us to our second point and our shortest, shortest point God's simple will is that we tend to the present, not to the future. We tend to the present, not to the future. Take a look finally at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The reason why Jesus says this, says this is simply because we just don't know tomorrow. I don't know when the next COVID spike will be. I don't even know if there will be a spike. And in fact, all of 2021 planning for youth group was like TBD. Like, and it was annoying because we planned something, we ended up scrapping it. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be uh, This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be responsible. We should plan and be responsible, but we do so with recognition that we can't control the future. Only God does. Obsessing over the future isn't how God wants us to live because it'll not only make us anxious but because it reveals our heart toward God. I mean, let's say that you knew everything about the future. Would you be inclined to trust God? So instead, Jesus tells us to tend to the present, to today, not to tomorrow or the future. Every little thing that you do today matters. Why? It's because the decisions that we make next year will be profoundly affected by the degree to which we seek the kingdom of God right now in today's decisions. 
Gerald Sitzer writes that the will of God concerns the present more than the future. It deals with our motives as well as our actions. It focuses on the little decisions that we make every day, even more than the big decisions that we make about the future. Because those little decisions pave the way for big decisions in the future. This is how we become wise people and wise decision makers. You see, the way that the scriptures describe wisdom isn't actually a set of guiding principles though that, that, that may be true, that may be a byproduct of wisdom. But the scriptures consistently and regularly describes and defines wisdom as a skill. Not a set of wisdom, not a set of facts to acquire. Wisdom is a moral skill. Wisdom is the skill of making good decisions and choices. Wisdom is the skill required to live a good life. And the way in which we grow at being skilled at wisdom is by tending to today, not tomorrow. If you'll remember the passage that Pastor Tim preached from last Sunday in James, he says that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, something that Pastor Tim didn't mention because it was beyond the scope of his message is that the characteristics of wisdom don't just magically pop up. They don't just magically happen by merely reading your Bible or listening to a sermon. We don't grow in character, godliness, and holiness passively. We grow in character, godliness, and holiness by practicing it. James says that a harvest, a harvest of righteousness happens when we make peace. Righteousness doesn't just happen automatically. It has to be nurtured. It has to be tilled. It has to be nourished. It has to be pruned. It has to be watered. It has to be practiced. When we practice gentleness, peacemaking, mercy, fairness, and sincerity, we practice and learn the wisdom of heaven. Here's an example. It's not enough to know that you can get the right answer on a test. I mean, teachers want to know how you got there, what your reasoning was, what led you to that answer or conclusion. They want you to back it up. In a similar way, God doesn't merely want us to make wise choices, though that's definitely good. More importantly, God wants us to be wise people who become capable of making wise choices and decisions. God wants wise choices that are backed up by wise character. And so wisdom, then, isn't knowledge. In fact, it's not true wisdom. True wisdom is knowledge applied and practiced. Wisdom, in other words, requires exercising and working out the moral fibers of our souls. You can't, I mean, and, and you athletes and musicians can correct me, but you can't get good at a sport if you don't put in the hard work of training and exercising. When you don't train, you're out of condition to perform optimally. All of you athletes know that. You can't get good at your fancy musical instruments if you don't make time to practice. If you don't develop the, mus the muscle memory of practicing over and over again. All of you mus musicians know that. If you want to be a good athlete, you have to train and exercise. If you want to be a good, good musician, you have to practice 
and be disciplined. If you want to be a wise Christian, you have to train and dis- discipline yourself to be wise. If you want to be good at life, you have to put in the hard work of training your soul, training your moral fibers, training your moral muscle memory. The reason why we, make, why we don't make good decisions in life isn't because we're dumb, okay? I, mean, I, I, like to, I, I, mean, I think a lot of us like to make the excuse is because you know, we, we just weren't thinking we're, we were dumb. All of you are so smart. I mean, some of you are going into to, to Yale, Stanford, all, this, like, all these Ivy Leagues. The reason why we don't make good, wise decisions in life isn't because we haven't developed... Sorry, the reason why we don't make good, wise choices in life is because we haven't developed our moral fibers to make good decisions. Foolishness isn't an intellectual problem. Because of our sin, we just don't care about living wisely. Because of our sin, we suppress God's desire for us to act wisely. But the hope of wisdom is that you can be wise right now, even if you haven't been in the past. If you aren't wise, you can be wise. Start today by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Where you end up tomorrow is determined by today. Today is the proper time to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not tomorrow. If we associate God's will with some great work we hope to do in the future, we will overlook the little things that we should be doing today. Form wise habits today to make tomorrow's wise decisions. I don't know what I'll do tomorrow. I don't even know what time I'll get up. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll move back to California or move to Hawaii. Just kidding. But I, I know what I'll be doing today. Seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when you do that, everything else will fall into place. Because that's God's will for your life. And that's God's will for mine. Let's pray.